right, we're in Hosea chapter 13 this evening. Hosea chapter 13. Last week we got through verse 2 of this chapter, and we pick up in verse 3 here. We're getting close to the end of the book now, and we're starting to bring the thing in for a landing. All right, after, after all these many, many chapters of uh, God talking about how the people had sinned against him, and uh, then we saw there in uh, uh, chapter... 11, his great love for them again expressed about how he asked, how could he give Ephraim up, you know? And uh, then in chapter 12, uh, we saw over the last couple of weeks, he sort of gives them a, uh, it's almost like a travelogue really of important sites there in the promised land that represented memorials or landmarks that the nation was supposed to have to be able to turn back to him. And he talks about how they corrupted those places like Bethel and Gilead and Gilgal, and they don't even know how to return anymore. Then we started in chapter 13 last time, and it talked about how uh, Ephraim offended in Baal, and he died. And of course, in the Bible, death uh, often refers to not just the ceasing of the body's physical functions, but to a separation from God. And that's what had happened with with this uh, kingdom of Israel or Ephraim, when they had gone after Baal, they had separated themselves from God. And we left off last time in verse 2 talking about how they'd made these idols. Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom when he split it away from Judah, had made those calves that he put in Bethel and Dan. And uh, it talks about there the foolishness of idol worship and it talks about how they had actually apparently had the habit of kissing the calves. That was what they would do in order to try to get good luck or something like that. And that really never has gotten out of the system of human beings in this world, has it? We've still got people today who rub a rabbit's foot or <laughs> look for a four-leaf clover. <laughs> Read the horoscope, play the lottery, all those kind of things like that, you know, trying to... Talking about a rabbit hood being lucky, he said it wasn't lucky for the rabbit. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so in verse three it says, Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passeth away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. In other words, because of their disobedience, they're going to disappear. They should have been stable. In this land, that was the covenant that God had made with them, is that if they were obedient, they'd be blessed here, they'd prosper here. But they've broken the covenant. And that takes us back again to the, the theme that we started this whole book with, was this picture of a marriage between uh, Israel and God. And that was pictured with the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. Gomer was unfaithful. Israel was unfaithful. And uh, if you remember back at the very beginning, uh, Gomer had those three children, and one of those children was uh, named Scattered, right? That was the, Jezreel was the name, but it meant to be scattered or sown. And that's what he says here, they're going to be scattered away. They'll be like the morning cloud. You know how that goes sometimes. You you get up sometimes in the morning and it's kind of, well, it's maybe not something we think about so much this time of year, but during the summer, when it's hot outside, you wake up and it's a little bit cloudy. You think, hey, it might not be too bad to work outside today. And sometimes that cloud blows away <laughs> pretty quick and it gets hot. And he says, that's what they are. They're the cloud that's blown away. The early dew 
that passeth away as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor. One of the things that's interesting about this book of Hosea is how he keeps bringing back in images that he's put in earlier in the book. And we've talked about chaff before in this book. We've talked about whirlwinds before. And chaff, of course, was the byproduct of wheat, the husks or the hulls of it, that they would uh, separate out on the threshing floors. We talked about that before. You put the wheat out on uh, an area that was sort of paved with stones, usually on top of a small hill, and have an ox tread through it, and that would separate the chaff from the wheat, and then the chaff would blow away because it was so light, and you'd have the good wheat left over. But he says, there is the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor. And, and that's a pretty interesting image. We also had earlier in this book that expression, they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Well, a whirlwind creates a problem up at the threshing floor, doesn't it? Because when the whirlwind blows through, you don't only get rid of the chaff, you lose the wheat too. And this is what happens sometimes when God brings about a national government, it doesn't, or a national judgment. It doesn't just affect the, uh, the people who are wicked, it affects the people who are righteous too. And we find this happens sometimes in the scripture with some of the prophets. Um, you know, men like Daniel and Jeremiah got caught up in the judgments that were brought about on their people. Did they deserve that? Well, no, not really. I mean, they were faithful to God, but they got caught up in it because of the wickedness around him. And he says, that's what the whirlwind does. And it's as the smoke out of the chimney. You ever watch smoke come out of a chimney? Smoke that's in the chimney is a highly directed thing, isn't it? That's what a chimney's for, as a matter of fact, is to direct the smoke. And there's a, it's constructed so there's a draft that moves that smoke upwards and out of the house. But once it gets out of the chimney, it just drifts off whichever way the wind blows, doesn't it? And he says that's what Israel becomes. They're just going to drift off whichever way the wind blows. And we're going to find out there's an east wind coming. We already saw something about that earlier, but we'll have it again in this chapter. He says, Yes, I am the Lord, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. He reminds them again of who he is. He's the one who delivered them from Egypt in the first place. He's the one that settled them there. The very beginning of the covenant he made with them out there, which is sort of equivalent to the marriage covenant that, uh, that we would compare Hosea and Gomer to, begins with the idea that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he says, here thou shalt know no god but me. And the reason that they won't is interesting here. They had the opportunity to just believe it and trust him and recognize him as their only god. But since they failed to do that, he's going to put them in a position where they need a savior and there won't be anybody else who can save them. Now, if you want to find out if a God is a real God, <laughs> you, can, you can do it the easy way or the hard way, <laughs> right? You can either just trust God or you can get to the point as a nation here, I'm talking not necessarily about individuals, but as a nation here, you can come to the point where you put God to the test. And uh, this is what's happening here. They're going to put all their gods to the test. They've been worshiping Baal. They've been worshiping Ashtaroth and other gods that have crept in. And they're going to come to the point where they find out who can actually deliver them. And the truth is that there is, as he says, there is no Savior beside me. Right? Because 
when they worshiped gods back in those days, we've talked about this before, most of their concept of uh, deities that they had when they got mixed up with all these pagan religions, most of it just had to do with agricultural prosperity. The chief gods were the gods that were supposed to bring in the harvest or to cause the livestock to, to prosper and produce. And uh, you, can, you can fool around with that junk for a while. <laughs> Uh, and sometimes God will let you do that as long as you don't really have to put the thing to the test. But what happens when the enemy comes? Well, then you don't just need a God who sends a little rain or a little sunshine now and then. You need a God who really is a sovereign. The uh, These pagan nations in the Middle East uh, would fight wars all the time and to a large extent, they thought that their wars were conflicts between their different national gods, right? And what they're going to find out here is when the Assyrians come down with their god, that if they have been worshiping Baal, Baal is no protection against the gods of the Assyrians. Now, they might have convinced themselves that Baal was giving them some corn and we actually, God speaks several times in this book about how He has continued to bless them and feed them even though they worshiped other gods. But when it comes down to depending on somebody to save you from the Assyrian army, well, there's only one true God who can do that. And there is no Savior beside Him. So they're going to have to learn that lesson the hard way. And it says in verse 5, I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought, and I think there he probably has reference to the times when he opened up a rock out there in the wilderness while the people were in that dry land and didn't have anything to drink, and he uh, provided them water there, right? And see, those are the things that they're supposed to remember. When it, when it rains from the heaven, you might think it's Baal, and you might think it's not, but when you get water start flowing out of a rock in a desert... <laughs> Now, that's out of the ordinary, right? And so that ought to get your attention. And uh, he goes on here. He says, according to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, have they forgotten me? We come back to a theme that we've touched on several times in this book, and we'll see it again in some of these other minor prophets, that sometimes material prosperity is the worst thing for a people spiritually. Because... The sin nature is such that when we don't feel it necessary to depend on God every single day for everything we have, we begin to forget Him. And so he said he's, he took him out of this wilderness land where they had to get water out of a rock and brought him to a place where they've got great pastures. Now, Israel today is mostly a desert land, but from all indications in the Scripture, at that time it, it wasn't so. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, remember, even back in Abraham's day, the reason Lot wanted to go down towards Sodom and Gomorrah is because those were the well-watered plains of Jordan. And so there was good pasture land down there. They got filled up, and their heart was exalted. You know, it's, it's a curious thing about human nature, and I think this is true in most of human experience, that for whatever reason... People who are very well off materially often think that they're actually morally superior to people who are not. 
and there's no real good reason to think that. Uh, that some, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. There are, there are good and rotten rich people and there are good and rotten poor people, right? Uh, but there's something about prospering materially that touches on a person's pride and makes people feel like maybe they're, well, a little better than the one who's not so well off. And in the middle of all that, they forgot that the only reason they had any of that stuff was because of the gracious provision of God to them. They had this land because God promised it to Abraham. You know why God promised it to Abraham? Because God chose to promise it to Abraham. And uh, that was just a matter of grace. And then Abraham believed his promise. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. They forgot all about him. Now, these, uh, these next two verses are pretty interesting. He says what he's going to do because they've forgotten him. He says, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard. By the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible and are familiar with prophecy, you might recognize this particular set of animals because they come up in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision. Now, there are, there are two great outstanding dreams and visions in the book of Daniel. There are others as well. There are a number of, number of them in the book of Daniel. But there are two in particular that have to do with empires that would come along in the world. And one of them came to Nebuchadnezzar. It was a dream he had, and, and Daniel was the one who could interpret that. And we've talked about that some before. He had that vision of a figure of a man. And remember, the, the different parts of the body were made up with different metals that represented different empires. Then in chapter 7, Daniel is given a vision. And uh, let me... Well, let me start all the way back in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 7. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove upon the great sea. And four beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised itself up, itself it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld. And lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. And notice with this beast, it doesn't tell us what kind of animal it is. It seems to be something unrecognizable uh, to Daniel. It's dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And uh, later on in the, uh, the chapter, 
the meaning of this is explained to them, or at least about that fourth beast especially. But the idea is that those, those three animals represented three kingdoms that would successively rule over the land of Palestine. And uh, the first, of course, represents the Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar that would come along and conquer Judah. And then, and this is, this is actually pretty important. This is something we'll come back to in some of the other books in the Minor Prophets, how this succession works. The Babylonians are the ones who overrun Jerusalem and take Israel into captivity for 70 years. But these things go in succession. They themselves are in turn overrun by the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And this actually occurs uh, while the, uh, the people are still down there in uh, Babylon. Because that's, uh, that's what God actually, that's the method God actually used to release them uh, from their captivity and allow them to go home. That's the story of the handwriting on the wall. Remember that night when, when the, uh, the, uh, they had that sort of dinner party down there or banquet or whatever you want to call it and they're all getting drunk. God sends the handwriting on the wall. Well, that very night, the Medes and the Persians uh, stormed the place and overran them. And so the Medes and the Persians then have power. And uh, they still are, they are in power while Daniel is still alive. And so part of his uh, prophetic work came during that period of time. And they were the ones, uh, it was a, a Persian, by the way, who was in power when Daniel was cast into the den of lions. And the reason that's interesting is because one of the things the Medes and the Persians were famous for was what has been called the inexorable law. That is, when a king gave a commandment, even the king himself could not rescind it. And that comes into play, of course, in, in Daniel's case, that uh, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, the king had made a law against praying to uh, the God that Daniel prayed to, and Daniel continued to pray to him. Now, the king actually liked Daniel and didn't want to throw him into the lion's den, but he couldn't break his own law. Now, it, uh, it makes sense then that a bear becomes a figure for that because of the ferocity of a bear in a, in a fight. It typically won't back down once it begins to commit itself to the fight, it, it's, it's going to fight the fight to the end. And then we had the third animal was a leopard. And what that picture was that after a period of time, the Medes and the Persians were then overrun by the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And a leopard's a very fitting image for that because of the incredible speed with which Alexander the Great took the world. Uh, and really, there's nothing in the ancient world, I think, that's... Uh, at all comparable to the amount of territory that he was able to conquer in a very short period of time. Uh, not much really even in the modern world that could be compared to that. It's a pretty extraordinary story. But then this fourth beast represents the Roman Empire that in turn conquers the Greek Empire. And that's very important to the whole prophetic scope of the Scripture because one of the ideas that you come across often in prophetic scripture is that the Roman Empire never really disappeared. Uh, it's, it's waiting to be reawakened. Okay, so with these other empires, at some point they're conquered and they're pushed off to the side. The Roman Empire, even though it's not exactly active today, right? The idea of the Roman Empire has never disappeared. And there have been all sorts of people over the years who have tried to revive something of the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, 
Rome itself, or at least vestiges of the Roman Empire, continued on much longer than uh, most most people in the West think of, because we think of Rome falling, uh, one of the dates it's usually given is 476, but somewhere around 500 A.D. But that was just the Western half. The Eastern half continued on for about a thousand years after that. And uh, so because... The, uh, they made the, the city of Byzantium when Constantine decided to make that his capital. He called it, renamed it Constantinople. And the city of Constantinople didn't fall until in the 1400s. So they maintained their, that was the second Rome. There are people in Russia who to this day think of Moscow as the third Rome because they, they considered that to be the continuation of a part of the Roman Empire. And uh, in Germany or in sort of parts of Northern Europe, they had what they called the Holy Roman Empire, which didn't really rule Rome exactly, and it wasn't holy either. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, the old joke about the Holy Roman Empire, of course, was that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But but the important thing is that they they carried the idea of being Roman. That was important to them to identify with that. And uh, even down through the years, the the Germans called their monarchs Kaisers, which is a form of the word Caesar. The Russians called their rulers czars, which is another form of the word Caesar. So this idea of continuing on Rome has always captivated people down through the years. And, and there, are, there are shades of fascination with Rome that carry over into people like Napoleon and even Hitler, uh, who were trying to restore some, uh, some renewal of this empire. The Victorians were obsessed with it. Yeah. They thought the British Empire was the Roman Empire. Yeah. And it just never has gone away. Now... Even in, even in our current times, there's, in sort of a different form, we have a European Union, which is trying to establish a sort of sovereignty over Europe. Um, but anyway, the idea is at some point when this man of sin comes along, and he's the one during the tribulation period who leads that great last persecution of Israel and so on, that he will, to an extent that nobody else has been able to do, successfully resurrect this Roman Empire. So the empire's never really gone. And that's why the Roman Empire is the last one listed, because it's still, it's still around. It's, it's sort of asleep right now, but it's still there. And it, it is to be raised up at the last time. Now, each of these, in some measure, ruled over the Jewish people. I think I've mentioned this here before. After uh, after the Babylonians conquered Israel, from that time until uh, 1948, the Jews never really had an independent state in that part of the world, except for a very brief period between the Old and New Testament when the Maccabees ruled. But uh, for all that period of time, Israel has been ruled by Gentile people. Okay, so when he talks about four beasts that came up from the sea, a lot of times in the prophetic scripture, the sea represents Gentile people. And so that's what these nations are. They're nations that have come up and they, from the Gentiles and they have exerted a dominance over Israel. Now, the interesting thing we find back here in Hosea chapter 12 is that we have the first three of those beasts mentioned. He says, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard, by the way, will I observe them, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. Now, let me remind you about the date of this. At the time Hosea writes, none of these 
empires have, uh, it's not that they don't exist, but they haven't come to a state of real power yet. It's the Assyrian Empire that's actually threatening the northern kingdom right now. But we're talking about something in the future here. He says the time is coming when he'll come to them as a lion, and that represents Babylon. The leopard that represents the Greeks as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. Right? You know, sometimes bears aren't very aggressive, but if you mess with their cubs, right, that's that's when you've got a problem. And so he says he's going to send these three empires against them as judgment. All of these have served in some way or other to uh, to constitute part of God's judgment on the people for their disobedience. And he says this, he says, and will rend the call of their heart. Now, that's actually a really interesting expression. You know what a call is? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the organs in the body are surrounded by sort of a, a lattice work or a, a layer of fat, and that's called a call. And uh, I think it's really interesting. He says he'll rend the call of their heart, but he doesn't say he'll rend their heart. Isn't that something? He's going to come very close. It's going to hurt, but he's not going to kill them. <laughs> he's going to let them know that he's displeased, right? But he's not going to finish them off. And here's the other thing that's really interesting about this. He says, I will be unto them as a lion, a leopard, by the way. I will meet them as a bear. But he doesn't say anything about that fourth beast. God is using these first three, and he's directing them and moving them as he will to bring his judgment on the people. But that fourth beast is so wicked that God has no part in that at all. He allows that fourth beast to come, but that is, it's the devil that's moving that. All right. If you understand what I mean. And, uh, it may be that there's some reference to that at the very end of verse eight, where he says the wild beast shall tear them. Maybe that's the reference to the fourth beast. It's not exactly clear, but he says the wild beast shall tear them. Anyway, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how these same pictures come up over and over again in prophecy. You'd almost think it was the same person that was behind the whole thing, wouldn't you? And it is. The Holy Spirit, of course, puts the whole thing together. And uh, so he has that image there of those nations that successively will come to bring a judgment upon Israel. Now, verse 9 is one of those verses in the Bible. You know, I've mentioned before that this book of Hosea, uh, besides being given by the Holy Ghost, is just very well written. Hosea was a good writer. He had a way of, a turn of phrase, a way of saying things. And uh, one of the skills of a good writer is to be able to say a whole lot in just a few words. And this ninth verse says a tremendous amount in a very short form. He says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. And it would be fair to say those words not just to Israel, but to the whole human race, wouldn't it? Reply to every single individual in the world. The truth is that very often the judgments that come upon us are simply that God just allows us to keep doing what we're doing to ourselves. We're taken in the snare of our own hands. And uh, that's the thing about sin is that Apart from whatever judgment God brings, sin itself will make you miserable in the end because it's not what you're designed to do. And he says this to Israel, you've destroyed yourself. Listen, this nation was made. All they had to do was obey. Yeah, it is. It is. You, you know, uh, and, and it's, it's a funny thing how nations follow these patterns. 
I was I was reading a book the other day about some things that were going on in the United States in the 20s and 30s, and it was some some bits of history that I was not entirely familiar with. And it was really interesting that that in the 20s and 30s, even though the United States has been more accepting of Jewish people generally than just about any other nation, in the 20s and 30s there was a very big wave of anti-Semitism in the United States. And uh, it was a lot of, even the newspapers were opposed to the Jews and printing editorials that were anti-Jewish and things like that. And lo and behold, we had a depression. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? And then World War II comes along and whatever else happened in the war, this nation delivered Jewish people in Germany from the wickedness of Adolf Hitler. And since World War II, this nation, I know we've had some downturns, but basically since World War II, this nation has endured, has enjoyed a prosperity that's unprecedented, really, in the history of the world anywhere. Well, the United States was the first nation to recognize it. That's right. As an independent yeah. Nation. Yeah. And and so, when you look at the direction our country heads today, it makes you think: Did we really learn anything? Mm-hmm. Lessons we learned long ago are quickly forgotten, aren't they? One of the scariest things that's going on in our nation today is there seems to be a new wave of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. There seem to be. Uh, a lot of people who are not sympathetic to Israel or to Jewish people in general. Yeah, that's right. So that's how nations manage to destroy themselves, right? And uh, it, it is. It's an interesting thing to think about. Like in our country today, I, I don't know that I don't know that we've ever seen anything quite like it in the history of the world. That we have a nation that has been so incredibly blessed and prospered. Mm-hmm and seems to want to intentionally turn its back on all the things that made it that way. It's like a great national suicide almost. And I think that has to do with that. One of the things God does sometimes to a nation to bring judgment on is He sends madness upon the people, I think, as a way of the Bible puts it once in a while. Uh, another way He puts it is that in the Great Tribulation, He says they'll believe a lie and be damned. And it's in a strong delusion. And I look around often and think if the if the delusion and the tribulation is going to be stronger than it is now already, it's going to be a very strong delusion. Because people will believe any sort of nonsense these days and seem to have no inclination even to seek out the truth. Well, this happened with Israel, didn't it? Because the the thing about Israel was they violated all this covenant they had with God and most of the people apparently, I think, in the northern kingdom, probably didn't even know what the covenant was. It was all written down, (laughs) if anybody bothered to go look, but they didn't care. And that's the case with our country today, is all of God's truth is in this Bible, if people would bother to go look, but most of them don't care. And so they destroy themselves. But in me is thine help. And we always we always come back to the grace of God, don't we? Israel has done nothing to merit God's help. But he's going to help them anyway. Because he loves his people. And though they have destroyed themselves, they've made a mess of themselves, he intends to deliver them. He says in verse 10, I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? Now, Remember, one of the great controversies that God has had with Israel in this book is the mess they've made with their kings. Because 
first of all, it was not God's perfect will for the nation of Israel to have kings at all. And uh, for over 400 years after they came into the land, they didn't. Uh, God was their king. They, God would send judges to rule over them and deliver them in times of trouble. But they finally came to the point that they demanded a king. And God gave them a king. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in the next verse. God relented and gave them a king. And remember, he told Samuel, who was the last of the judges, that they had not rejected, uh, they've not rejected you, they've rejected, that is, they had not rejected Samuel, they'd rejected God when they did that. So, and that, and that's even talking about kings that God rightfully recognized and anointed. That was that first king, of course, was Saul, and God took the kingdom from him. But God ordained the line of David, in spite of the fact that it wasn't his perfect will, apparently, for them to even have kings. And he gave them that line of David and uh, continued to bless that line of David on such occasions as they would deign to be obedient to him, which wasn't all the time. But uh, he would recognize them and and strengthen them and, and save them from their enemies at different times. But in this northern kingdom, they have taken to giving providing kings for themselves that, that aren't even the ones that God chose for them. They start picking their own kings. And they decide they're going to follow after Jeroboam instead of the line of David. And uh, they follow after him, but when they decide they don't like his descendants, they throw them out and find another. They don't like that one, they throw them out and find another. And it begins to sound a lot like our politics, doesn't it? That's one of the things that's amazed me all my life about politics is that is how is how we have this these pendulum swings from one side to the other, because we elect people in power from one party, and they don't do what we like, and we get upset, so we throw the bums out and get the other party in, only to find out within a few years that they make us just as upset as the first bunch did. So we throw them throw those bums out, and we bring the other bums back in. <laughs> And this has been going on for about 200 years in this country, over 200 years, right? And we wonder why it never gets better. Well, the reason it never gets better is because we're not trying to find the person God wants to lead. We're finding somebody that suits us. And you won't fix the problem that way in the end. And that's what he says to them. He says, uh, he says when, when I finally reconstitute you, now remember this northern kingdom, never has been properly reconstituted and won't be until really until the kingdom age and Jesus will put them back together. He says, I will be thy king. <laughs> that is, Jesus Christ is going to come and be their king. And he's the one who will finally fix it. He says, where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? He said, I've given you in this northern kingdom, they've had 200 years, I've given you your chances. <laughs> I've let you go through a whole bunch of kings to see if they could save you and none of them could. And he says, I'm going to have to come in and have a takeover. So he says, uh, Where is any other that may save thee in all thy city, and thy judges of whom thou saidest, Give me a king and princes? He says, Where are they now? What have they accomplished? What have they done? You're looking down the gun barrel of the Assyrian army, and where are all those kings now? And look what he says in verse 11. I gave thee a king in mine anger, <laughs> and took him away in my wrath. <laughs> Now, now that's, that is quite a verse right there. He says, I gave you a king, but I did it in my anger. <laughs> right? I wasn't happy about it. You provoked me. <laughs> you provoked me. That's exactly right. 
and I took him away in my wrath. Now, I think we've talked here before about the difference between anger and wrath. And the difference between anger and wrath is essentially this, that wrath is the practical application of anger, right? It's, it's, uh, it's anger unleashed. I remember when, I was, when we were in school, we took physics, and they taught us about the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. <laughs> potential energy is the energy that's, that's just pent up waiting to be released. Kinetic energy is when you let it go, right? Well, anger is potential energy. That is that God is angry, but he's not executing his wrath yet. He's not, you're not seeing the visible evidence of it. And that's quite an interesting thought, isn't it? Because God gave them kings, and for quite a long time, he allowed them to be blessed unto the kings. He was angry with them for, for wanting it, but he didn't, he didn't pour out his wrath. But he says, uh, the time has come now to take away the king in my wrath. He says, you're going to see the execution of my anger now. And that's such a fearful thing, isn't it? I, I want to turn back to a, uh, one of the Psalms now, the 84th Psalm. I think it's really interesting with this idea of wrath and anger. 85th Psalm, I'm sorry. He, he says here, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all thy sin, Silah. And that sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Now notice this. He says, They've come back from captivity. He's prospered the people. He took away his wrath. And then he says, Thou hast turned thyself not from thine anger, but from the fierceness of thine anger. And see, the thing that's underlying that is this. They're, they've come back home. They're blessed. God is taking care of them. But his anger against them is not gone. The wrath is not being executed at this moment. But the the fierceness of the anger is not seen, but the anger is still there. And the next verse says, Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. And you see, there's incredible wisdom in the psalmist here because he recognizes the real problem. How, how many of us would think that as long as we're in the land and we're prospering and everything, that everything must be a-okay? The psalmist here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes that even though the fierceness of God's anger is not being seen, the wrath is not being seen at this moment, that the underlying cause for God to be angry is still there. And of course, that cause is sin. Sometimes God allows people to prosper for a while, even though they're sinful, even though he's angry with them. And he understands what needs to be done here. He says, cause that anger toward us to cease. He wants to get the anger done with. And notice how he says that has to be done. He says, turn us, <laughs> oh God. God has turned himself from the fierceness of his anger, but in the end, it's not God who needs to be turned, it's us. And it's very interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, I will turn, oh God. He doesn't even say, help us turn. He said, turn us, because we can't turn ourselves. And we have such need of grace, don't we? That's the only way the anger of God can ever be dealt with. Well, this people of Israel have been given a king in God's anger, 
he's going to be taken away in God's wrath, and they're going to feel his wrath now. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon them, come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. Now, again, there's a lot in this verse. The idea of a travailing woman is one that's used often in the Bibles, especially in the prophets, uh, with regard to a nation having to endure judgment or people having to endure judgment. It, it even comes up in the Old Testament. There's a, a famous verse about the judgment of God in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. It says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And, of course, travail, it, well, the word we would now probably use is, is labor. And those of you, those of you ladies who have given birth, know how that is. That's a thing that can sometimes come upon you very suddenly, right? Yep. And you it just, <laughs> and once it's there, you can't escape it. <laughs> the only way out is to bring forth a child. Mm -hmm. And so it's used as a picture of judgment. It was used as a picture of judgment for the southern kingdom in Micah chapter four, verse ten. It said, "Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail." For now thou shalt go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the land, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. That's uh, Micah 4.10. And this is, like I said, this is to the southern kingdom. Uh, Hosea is mostly talking to the northern kingdom. This is in Micah, uh, speaking of a time that would come about a hundred years later. But he says... They're going to be in travail, like a woman in travail. Now, the idea there with that captivity, that captivity is an interesting thing because it was an inescapable thing. Uh, God had pronounced it. There was no way out of it. And it's also interesting because it had a, an exactly prescribed length. It was exactly 70 years. And I had somebody ask me a question the other day about a verse in Lamentations where it, it says something about... Uh, that uh, the, what a person ought to do is uh, quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord, hope and quietly wait for it. And I said, that sounds strange, right? Say quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Well, understand that in Lamentations, that was Jeremiah writing about the Babylonian captivity. It's not about waiting for salvation of the soul. It's the idea that in Jeremiah's day, because of the sin, they had actually been commanded to submit themselves to go into Babylon. They were told not even to go down to Egypt. He said, you just take your, you take your medicine, right? And it had a defined term of 70 years. So he said the thing there to do was to just go down there and quietly wait for the 70 years to be up. It's miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so that's the idea. It was like a, it was like a travail. The thing with the woman in travail, it's, it's painful, but you know there is an end coming at some point. And when that comes, it's worth the travail. They tell me, I guess. I've never. <laughs> how would I know, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but that's that's what the Bible said. Is that is that's what the Bible said? Is is that uh, when you see that baby, it's uh, the travail is forgotten, and so that's the kind of uh, thing that they would have to go through in judgment. Is there would have to be a, an ordained period of time that they would have to go through this travail. Well, with that as the background, come back to. Uh, Hosea chapter 13, verse 13. Now we're talking about Ephraim. We're not talking about the southern kingdom here. We're talking about Ephraim, the northern kingdom. 
And it says, The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. So that's the idea there about this northern kingdom. They're in a much worse shape than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom had a travail of a prescribed time of 70 years. The northern kingdom is enduring this travail right down to the present day. And so that's why they're an unwise son. They were not supposed to stay long in the place of breaking forth of children, but they've, they've been there for 2,700 years now. Uh, and this travail will have no end for them until Christ actually comes back. And certainly that's been borne out in the history of the world. When we see what's happened to the Jews over the years, they have been treated very badly almost everywhere they've gone. It's, it's um, very frankly, I think the treatment of the Jews down through history is inexplicable on any other basis than, well, two things, that God has delivered them to this judgment and that the devil hates God's chosen people because they've just really been treated worse than anybody else. Nobody's been abused like Jewish people have for centuries, for millennia now. And so that's what he says. They're, they're an unwise son. He should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children, but he has. He stayed there for a very long time. And... Uh, we hope and pray that the breaking forth won't be too much longer now. I think we maybe see some signs around us that the end may be in sight, but that's what he's endured. Well, I'm not going to go on into verse uh, 14 tonight because that is maybe actually the most important verse in the whole book, and we want to spend a little time on that. I don't want to rush that here with just a couple of minutes left because this is the point we've been driving at the whole time, really. And this is a place where we, we jump from all this business about Ephraim and their covenant with God all the way into the New Testament and find out what the real solution is to everything that's wrong with the people. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's the only solution for sin, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for anybody. And he's going to make a ransom. Now, if you're thinking back to the very beginning of this book with what happened with Hosea and Gomer... What did Hosea have to do? He had to go ransom Gomer, didn't he? Well, God's going to make a ransom for his nation too. But there's a price to be paid that is far higher than anything Hosea ever paid. And we'll come back and look at that next time, Lord willing. Any questions or comments?